0: What's up, simple passive cash flow listeners? Today I've got Andrew Zatlin from the Moneyball Trader. But he's got this thing called the Vice Index where he interviews prostitutes to get an indicator of the economy. He got me actually watching the news lately and following this China trade deal that Trump's got going on. And in another news, I quit my job a few weeks ago and now I am living the dream. So if you guys got any questions, please email me. And uh, if we haven't chatted before you and you signed up for the HuiDuel Pipeline Club, please schedule a call with me and let's get to know each other. Later this week, we've got the Investor Newsletter conference call. If you guys are on the email list, you guys need to get on there so you can get invited to that and the secret password to join in. Our next in-person HuiDuel Pipeline Mastermind will be held in Belize in June. Check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash mastermind Belize for more details. And other personal news, I finally quit my day job, and it's only been a few weeks, but if you want some of my thoughts on it, I'll do a future podcast. Check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash quit for some details. You know, I'm not going to lie, after 10 years of doing this passive investing thing, it's finally paying off. I get to stay home on Monday and not do much. Well, I am these days doing with the mastermind and all these other sort of activities and making m- more podcasts. But it's stuff I want to do. Probably about the only bad thing that's happened to me lately is I've gotten my new vanity license plate rejected. Here's the voicemail that they they sent to me. If you're a Huido Pipeline Club member, I'll let you know what I was requesting. Hello, this message is for Lane. This is Thomas from Motor Vehicle Registration. I'm calling in regards to a special plate that you ordered on the internet. The selection is denied as a public and considerate offensive. I will meet with the accounting supervisor who will start the recredit of the $25 fee back to your charge card. If you have any questions... This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went try to rent them out, and then he became one real investor man. Hey, simple passive cash flow listeners. Today I have Andrew Zatlin from the Moneyball Trader. Now, if you guys haven't heard about this website, you guys need to check it out before he closes it down or I don't know what he's going to be doing with it. The Moneyball Trader is a weekly advisory. You guys can go and check it out and see his full research and analysis of top companies to buy and sell. I wanted to get Andrew on and pick his brain because I kind of reached out to him and I've been reading your, uh, your newsletter for the last what three, four years, I think, Andrew. Wow. Thanks for that.
1: Wow. There's a plug. Thank you.
0: I think, you know, your, your claim to fame here is the uh, Vice Index, where you, I don't know where you get this data from, but you kind of pull how the prostitution and gambling and liquor businesses are doing to kind of get a barometer on how real the economy is doing. You know, just get a little background for folks real quick, you know, Andrew began as trained economist focusing on consumer trends as a research fellow at Kyoto University Economic Research Institution. Wanting more hands-on to the business world, he went to the Han School of Berkeley for his MBA in 1992. And then his next stop was Silicon Valley at the onset of the digital revolution. Let's talk about his vice index, just to people's <laughs> interests. <laughs> you, you painted me out to be the prostitute whisperer.
1: So, so let me take a step back. I mean, yeah, it's not like the, you have
0: a guy in the corner that kind of tells you how hot the market is, right? You're looking at...
1: No, no, no. I, I go to strip clubs and I ask, The strippers, what's really going on? And to be honest, I used to do that. Quick story. So, for for your listeners here, just so you understand, my goal is not to find these alternative data signals. What happened was when the recession came, the Great Recession, as they call it, I, I was overwhelmed by the fact that there was all this wonderful data out there pointing to the incipient recession, but you had all these talking heads at the Fed and from Wall Street saying, nope, everything's great. You know, remember Ben Bernanke? Oh, it's all contained. Well, I started to pick apart and kind of really dive under the headline way that this information was being processed, and it really is like a sausage. It's ugly. It's disgusting, and it's meaningless. A lot of the data points that we hear talked about in the media, they're 70 years old. Our economy has changed so much, but they haven't updated these data points. So a case in point for me was you know, how do we track retail spending? And what I found is if you look at the retail spending number that comes out, everyone's really focused on what are consumers doing, right? Because we are a consumer economy. Well, one place you could go is the consumer sentiment number. Well, guess what? That is based off of an interview of 400 people. Literally once a month, they will come out and the markets will swing because consumers are positive, they're negative. No, they talk to 400 people, okay? Okay. Think about what that means. You know, it's, it's meaningless. It's useless. And the retail number that they come out with, it's all about what is being bought in a store. So if I take a flight to Honolulu, that's not included. If I go to Vegas and I gamble, that's not included. If I stay in a hotel, that's not included. And in today's world, when you're talking about how we're buying and spending, and you've got this online capability of, of buying stuff cheaper that retail number suddenly starts to become less and less relevant to, are consumers more positive and are they spending more or are they spending less? So one of the things I did was I said, well, let's let's find a data point that cuts across all demographics, all socioeconomic levels, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, Indian, Asian, you know, whoever, right? and let's see if we can find the data that says this is really what people are spending when they feel flush. So could we come up with a a way to look at luxury spending that went beyond, are people buying more at Tiffany's or are they spending more on wine and steak? Well, it turns out that if you start measuring things like spending on cannabis, alcohol, Vegas, and even prostitution, you've got a really interesting number. First of all, it goes back 25 years. It's very leading. It leads the retail number by four months. So you get this advanced visibility to, hey, do I, have, you know, do I have money in my pocket? Do I feel like I've got money in my pocket for tomorrow and a couple months down the road, and I can go out and I can do silly things with it? And so the Vice Index came out of that. It's, it's an amalgam, sort of an index, taking all those data points, pulling them together in a quantified way. It looks at transactions, and thanks to the web, I can look at 10 million transactions a month, not 400. 10 million And you can say, "Wow, people are feeling so good that prostitutes are raising prices, because they can, because there's enough money out there and competition hasn't caught up." And so that, that was the starting point. And then true story: The Wall Street Journal, NPR, and a couple of other places uh, heard about the advice index, so I had all of the entire spectrum asking me questions about it. And I challenged the Wall Street Journal and I said, "Hey, why don't we get a budget?" Ben Bernanke and team have come out with what the Fed thinks is happening with prices. And they've gone out and they've asked businesses what they expect to see. Let's take those same questions. You know, are customers more or less? Is there more competition? What's happening with prices? What's happening with costs? All those standard economic questions. But let's go to prostitutes and let's ask them what they're encountering. I said, we'll do it on the up and up and, and we'll, we'll actually bake this cake in a very public way We'll make sure that we ask high, medium, and low-end. And just off on the side, you have to understand, this is not pretty women type of experience. These tend to be very college-educated or highly educated women. We have this media-driven view that prostitutes are forced into this line of work, and I will tell you right now that my interaction as an economist asking questions, most of the women I have spoken to have gone into this business because they make three to $400 an hour tax-free and they get to pick and choose their customers. Most of their customers are professional people. These are educated women who have made a decision that this is the way that they wanna go and make a living. They're not forced into it. You're always gonna have the anecdotal forced into it. You're always gonna have the hardship stories, but you have that anywhere, right? Does the guy at the 7-Eleven really wanna work the cash register? No, but he or she has to. You'll always have those stories in any industry, but let me make sure that everyone understands that if you wanna get economic insight, talking to a prostitute is as good as talking to anybody else. You could talk to someone who's doing a flight to Vegas and you'll find out a lot about what's going on in the economy. Are more people flying, yes or no? All right, so, oh, off on the side, two years ago, the Bank of England started to incorporate prostitution and escort services within their estimation of the GDP. GDP promptly went up 0.5% per year. This is something that is spent on by a lot of people and we need to just acknowledge it. It is, a, it is probably more money gets spent on that than on football games, okay? So having said that, I asked Wall Street Journal if they would subsidize this type of analysis. We know what the Fed thinks is happening with inflation. Let's ask prostitutes what they think is happening. And the Wall Street Journal guys uh, hemmed and hawed, and they came back to me and said, you know, uh, we don't pay for interviews. That was their excuse to say no. I went to Fox News, and they're like, hey, I think we got the budget. So- <laughs> We weren't able to move forward, but the point here is when I started interviewing prostitutes about what they were seeing, I got the most amazing, insightful feedback because they were coming back with perceptions on, first of all, were their costs going up? Were hotels charging more? And if so, why? Or other costs going up? How was gas affecting them? How was real estate pricing affecting their ability to rent rooms, which they could then use? and how it was forcing them more and more into the suburbs as opposed to the metro areas. What were they seeing in terms of their clients having money to spend and so on and so forth? They were more accurate in their forecast of inflation than the Fed was, asking businesses. It was incredible, year after year. So the Vice Index is is really just a way to say there are better ways to understand the real economy than the ways that are currently in the conventional data stream. So the Wall Street Journal calls me the the money ball of economics because I come at this whole place, not from Wall Street, but from Main Street and saying, look, this is the way people and companies really operate. These are the things that trigger spending more or less. So let's really start to watch those things. And the things that you're used to seeing, maybe they're not that good anymore. Maybe they're less relevant. In case you didn't know it, there was an analysis done after the recession at the Federal Reserve. They said, why did we miss this? How could we miss this big, big burning problem? And they they went inside and they said, okay, well, we got two problems. You got the Cassandra problem, which is shoot the messenger. Whoever brings bad news, the bearer of bad news is always gonna get shot. But even worse, almost every economist out there who's got a PhD and is in a position of any kind of authority, JP Morgan's economist, that kind of thing, they had to get a grant from the IMF or the Fed So you have the kind of the temple priests controlling the party line, so to speak. And so on up and down, if you want to have a different opinion, if you bring it in as bad news, you're going to get shot. Or conversely, you're not going to get funded. So everyone looks at the same data in the same way because that's the way it's controlled. It's managed that way. So I was coming in more from the standpoint of, hey, I'm in Silicon Valley. I've got a little bit more, I don't know, real data. You know, who's looking at Craigslist to find out if apartment vacancies are going up or down and seeing where that might happen and then deriving some information intelligence from that. You know, if vacancies are surging in San Francisco, is that a sign of a strong economy? Probably not. And if that's happening in every major city, is that a sign of a strong economy? Probably not. So what do we what do we want to do about that? How do we invest accordingly? And what I found was that that kind of data was simply not reaching the folks at Wall Street. So there's been a revolution, though, since I started. There's been a revolution in Wall Street's thinking in terms of saying, yes, conventional data simply is missing the mark most of the time. And so what do we want to do about that? Most of my clients fall into two categories. They're really interested in finding out what's going on at the company specific level. And so, for example, uh, again, going back to the data I track, I've been able to pull hiring data at each company that's publicly traded and track, you know, are they stepping on the gas or stepping on the brakes and what that probably implies, you know, are they going to, is there going to be an earnings surprise, good or bad? And there's definitely a lot of folks in the equity markets who love that. But then I also take it and I aggregate that up and I start forecasting things like payrolls On on Bloomberg, I'm the number one guy for forecasting jobless claims. That's a weekly, hey, you know, are we getting, well, what's the magic number this week for jobless claims? But the reason I like that one, and I'm going to come back to this in a second, but the reason I like jobless claims is it's probably the only mainstream conventional data point that you can rely on to get a real handle on the pulse of the economy. So a lot of, a lot of folks are very interested in the macroeconomic situation because if Germany is starting to slow down, then they've... Got their bonds in, and we're talking big institutions moving billions of dollars around they need to know who's relatively strong and who's relatively weak and, and get ahead of that curve or if things slow down are we going to see the the two two year type of inversion you know what do we do about that and you know what are some near term macroeconomic things that might change that curve and what would we look at to know so that's that's kind of a background to where I'm coming from, which is tracking data at sort of the the fundamental main street level and trying to interpret that for wall street folks. It's been kind of fun because I, I I think the data is so much better that I tend to beat the Goldman Sachs and the JP Morgans and, and most of the other professional wall street forecasters out there. So that's why my institutional clients like me, because again, I might come out with something that's totally consistent and in line with everybody else, but when I diverge, that's when the conversations flow. What is it I'm seeing that the mainstream folks aren't seeing? So, so if it's I was- sort
0: of indicative of, like, the money ball comes from Oakland A's, right? The whole thing was, like, the coach yeah, he found exactly this, uh, like that on-base percentage was a high indicator of value compared to the salary. Yeah, um- I mean, it,
1: what happened is, you know, let's face it, a Barry Bonds for the Giants is awesome. He, he puts butts in the seat, right? The potential to see a home run is exciting. But when you really looked at his ability to drive in runs and actually contribute to the game, you know, it wasn't really that material. You could have gotten rid of him, but it's, that's the, that was the challenge. It's exciting, adds value, but does it really produce the wins? And so the idea was what, what's, what's, what really is material, what really matters in defining, coming up with a, a much better sense of what the right metrics would be, and then finding the right data that leads into it the data i'm looking at is really interesting i track hiring and what's interesting to me is as we came into this year there's, there's a lot of nervousness everywhere you know we, we spent the 2018 it was rock and roll economically and rates were kind of trickling up a little bit nothing too severe and you know everything seemed great for the us and then all of a sudden you know things started to stutter a little bit and people started asking questions Again, I'm I'm in the stock market a little bit more than the real estate market, but you could see in the stock market, you know, the crash in December, you could see the nervousness creeping in. You could even see it creeping into the real estate market a little bit. You saw rates going up. You saw housing permits going down. You know, all these things that seem to say feels like a recession's coming in and people are starting to get defensive. And that's what we saw the first couple of months. We saw, again, that defensiveness start to creep in car sales started to waver. The stuff I'm seeing right now, though, hugely positive. And I'm right now trying to read these tea leaves. And you ask the question, what's going on in the economy? Because what happens in the broader economy will trickle into real estate. And the question is when and how. But right now, the question that everyone seems to be asking is at the high level, where where is the economy going? It, It doesn't have that strong signal. It seems to be plateauing, what comes next? And those are the kind of questions I'm getting. And I'm looking at some cool data right now that says, you know what? It looks like we're about to catch our second wind, which if it's right, be really exciting because again, you've got money in the pocket. You know, If you're someone who owns property and you're renting it out, you'd like to think that you can have a hundred percent fill, zero percent vacancy, and you can bump up the rental fees and so on. It looks like that's what could be coming down the pipeline. From what I'm seeing, it looks like there's this renewed interest in hiring people and spending money that whatever the negativity was, and you know, we could, we could sit here and come up with a short list of why people were feeling negative, what the drivers were. But bottom line, what I'm seeing is companies have stepped on the gas again with respect to hiring. And you'll start to see that over the next couple of months. Then that has that trickle down effect because we are coming up to some exciting times for uh, real estate.
0: We've all kind of beat on this drum that the 10 and the 2-year treasury inverse maybe like a few months ago or for, kind of forget but recently and that's also signaled to the academics that a recession is 6 to 12 months ahead. So that kind of are, are we going to reverse off that or
1: Well, so that that's what's interesting is I I just looked at somebody's 36-page slide deck of why the world is about to come crashing down. You know, we, we shoved all this debt and liquidity into the market, and now it's payback time. It's hard to argue against that, right? And that's part of what's going on is the fundamentals don't look super positive. But they don't look super negative either. And so that's, let's go back and say, what, what is a recession? Why does that curve invert? And there can be benign reasons, and there can be malign reasons for those inversions, right? That's really like taking somebody's temperature. Are you running hotter or colder? It's a real blunt instrument. People oftentimes make the mistake of saying, oh, inversion is the dog. It's not. It's the tail. It's being like it's, it's the symptom of an illness or, or what's going on. So we've got to dive into what's going on and not say, oh, inversion means definite recession. To understand what's going on, I like to actually use a simple, more simple type of measurement, and that's jobless claims. I said a minute ago, Lane, I want to come back to that. All right, so let's, let's talk jobless claims jobless claims is somebody came in and said, I don't have a job. It's not opinion. It's mostly fact. A couple people cheat, but it's not somebody's view that then gets modeled and sampled. It's literally every city in the U S is tracking how many people came in the door and said, I was working. I'm not working anymore. There's a seasonality to it. And there's some other factors that, that will drive it. But bottom line, these are the folks who are temp workers, admin type of things, these are the folks who work at restaurants, they're bartenders, waiters, and these are the general contractor laborers. So these are the people who can be hired and fired at will. And that's key, especially in the U.S. where it's hard to hire and fire people. These are the folks who are, who are basically working a lot at the mom and pop stores. You have basically a really good barometer of what's really going on at the local level. These are companies that tend not to have deep credit li- lines of credit if they need to hire somebody because business is booming, they're going to reach out and do it. If they need to fire somebody because business is slowing, they're going to do it. They don't waste time. They don't wait. It happens immediately. So this data point, it's not messed with. Most of the government data points are incredibly messed with because these are statisticians at work. They do things. They don't, you know, they don't leave data alone. This one is mostly left alone. So you really do have a finger of, on the pulse of what's really going on. And so if you look at it year over year, If companies are, and and so this is the fundamentals. When I talk about the tail and the dog, jobless claims are expressing what companies are doing. It's the tail, but it's much closer to the dog and what's going on. If businesses are seeing more business, they hire more people and they fire less. It's just that axiomatic. And so the question is, what does that mean hiring more or hiring less? If you take jobless claims and you compare them to last year and you run it through a couple of, you know, fun, funky mathematical things like rolling average and all that other good stuff. Essentially, time and time again, for every business cycle, the same signal happens. Just as we were talking about the uh, yield rate inversion type of thing, you get the same exact batting average, thousand batting average here. And what that batting average is, says, look, at a certain point in time, companies stop hiring because the foot traffic, the amount of business they're doing is the same as last year. If I come in, if I'm Baskin-Robbins and I'm a local store, the same number of people are coming in my store, I'm not going to hire more kids this year than I did last year. I'll hire the same. And so when you get that year-over-year parity, every single time you get there, and it stays there for a period of time, measured in about six weeks, recessions in six to nine months, guaranteed, because it's telling you that companies are not growing anymore. And when the economy stops growing, the next stage is it starts slowing. And so that's the definition of a recession, right? It's just you have this period where we're not growing, we're actually kind of sort of contracting a little bit relative to where we were. It doesn't have to be the end of the the world. It's just, hey, we've plateaued, let's catch our breath a little bit, we fine-tune, and then something happens that we start growing again, you hope. What we're seeing right now with jobless claims is we're certainly within spitting distance of the same number of claims last year, meaning firing the same number of people. We're not retaining as many people. We're we're we're, we're, we're basically seeing the same level of economic growth this year as we were last year. Still growing, but not often up to the right. But here's where it gets a little interesting. That's the trend. We've We've been approaching this point for a long time. This isn't like overnight all of a sudden. This is, no, we've been steadily, steadily getting close to that plateau. We actually exceeded that level in the first quarter, which means we had more jobless claims in the first quarter of this year than we had last year. And more critically, this was in almost every state in the U.S. So it wasn't like a hurricane hit uh, New Orleans and that knocked things off center. This was almost every state and especially the big states had more people saying I'm out of work this year than they had for the same period last year. That is the hallmark of a recession's coming. Then all of a sudden we get to April and it does a 180. All of a sudden we're now down again. We're below that parity level. Why? I think because as there was that nervousness I mentioned, and then you come into April, it's the new quarter and businesses look around and they say, you know what? Things are actually pretty good. Actually, they're they're better than good. We're not going to see rates going up, obviously. Okay, so I'll step on the gas a little bit. So I think right now where we are is you've got this second quarter renewed optimism that's going to be coming out. It's not again, you know, Happy days, party party on, Wayne. But we've, we're going to see a little bit more interesting growth. And so what I would encourage people to do is your number one barometer that you want to start watching is jobless claims. Now, if you're in the stock market, another reason why you want to watch jobless claims is studies were recently done by Bank of America and J.P. Morgan. And remember, they're controlling a lot of money flow. They've got clients who listen to them. And what they found was of all the conventional data points, jobless claims stood head and shoulders above every other one for predicting recessions consistently. So what you have is you've got the big boys are watching jobless claims. So why don't you watch that too? Not only because it's good, they're watching it because it's good, but also that's gonna direct where the stock market goes. From a real estate investor standpoint, what I just shared was good news. Things are, there's still gas in the tank. And I think what you're gonna see with that yield rate inversion is it's gonna flip again once we get to the China-US trade war end.
0: What does it take to make one cup of coffee? What are the stories contained in a single cup? Who is this handsome man? Back from kicking the dirt in the high elevations in Panama. The site of the investment I am proudest of in my personal holdings, which is Turnkey Coffee Farmland Parcels. Coffee Cash Flow and a legacy investment within turnkey management. Go to Simple Passive Cash flow Backslash Coffee to get a parcel in your mind before the whole mountain is gone. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean. A lot of people oh, well, poop. One out. second. What's the oh, yeah. what's what's the way to look up that jobless claims? I'm going to put it up on the screen for folks watching on the YouTube.
1: Okay. Um, there's the official site, and I can give that to you. The official site is www.dol.gov Department of Labor. dot. gov. slash ui. UI stands for Unemployment Insurance. UI slash data pdf so www.dol.gov slash ui slash data.pdf that comes out every thursday morning for folks in in hawaii you're going to get it 2 a.m in the morning i think my god but it comes out each week and they do some interesting things year-over-year analysis as well but bottom line what's happening is you want to look at this on a year-over-year basis we're spitting distance we keep bouncing up and down. We're, we're close to it. And again, when you're at that level, the message is this. The economy is close to plateauing. It's a question of when not. But you could see that when shifting back into an if, if two things happen, if you get a real China trade deal, and if Trump and team somehow pull out an infrastructure bill. Now, the infrastructure bill is not a 2019 opportunity, so we got to take that off the table. So the question is right now, what would keep a recession at bay? And the answer is a China deal. And let, me, let me explain to you why I'm, I'm very favorable about a China deal suddenly creating a new burst. Let's say China's, you know, what, what, what's China going to buy from us? Uh, the agricultural products isn't really going to cut the mustard. So the negotiations are probably much more specific away from that. It's probably more towards energy. Let's face it, China's been making investments in a lot of places trying to get energy. We happen to have a lot of liquid natural gas. So let's say China says, look, we will cut a deal. We will guarantee $10, $20 billion of LNG purchases over 5, 10 years, whatever, whatever that magic number is, right? All right, well, right off the bat, we have to now build a terminal that will handle that flow. So that's a billion-dollar investment. So all of a sudden, you got to recruit people who can come in and build that kind of terminal. So, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about where a China deal can suddenly start spurring that infrastructure spending that then kicks things into overdrive. So, you take that marginal growth at a time when we are already stretched, and all of a sudden you've got growth left, right, and center.
0: So, what, what do you say when, like, you know, the average recession or top to trough is eight to 12 years, and we're right at that 12 year mark, 10, 12 year mark? You got to look at it differently than that. And you're right. And the reason is this.
1: I wish I could share a slide with you. I'll send you, I'll send you a slide deck and uh, feel free to, to share it with your, your listeners. Yeah, we'll put it.
0: We'll put in the show notes if you guys visit this yeah. on the website. Yeah, for sure.
1: One of the charts I want to encourage you. So You, you have to really think, think through how the internet changed everything. If you look at the amount of inventory companies used to keep on hand relative to their sales, it was pretty enormous. It was pretty substantial. When the internet came in, what did the internet really do? Well, first of all, it connected you to your warehouse. It connected you to your your supply chain. It connected you to your buyers better. So all of a sudden, you could get better visibility to what the real demand was. That meant you could start to keep less inventory on hand. Inventory is very key for recessions. Inventory is what the Fed tries to get businesses to buy more of to keep the economy going. So when they say we're going to raise interest rates and that's going to slow the economy down, or we're going to lower interest rates, and that's going to boost it up. What's really going on is businesses sit there and say, okay, if you drop interest rates, what you're really effectively – well, you're basically trying to get me to buy more or less based on my view of what the future price is going to be. If I think the economy is going to pick up and prices are going to go up, I better buy now. So this is how the Fed basically – that's their main trigger for getting – economy going again when they mess with interest rates. It's trying to boost spending in the near term by pulling in spending from further out. Hey, you know what? Maybe I stockpile a little bit more. So that's the main trigger, the main mechanism. But with the internet, it's inherently deflationary. It's basically saying, I'm going to connect you with places where there might be stuff that you need that's cheaper, or it's available and you don't have to worry about getting it. And that's what the internet did. You take the internet, And all of a sudden, China can participate in the global economy, literally. All of a sudden, you can buy stuff from China that you couldn't necessarily get because now you can connect to them immediately. And the same thing happened with not just bringing in more producers and thereby keeping prices low. All of a sudden, I've got another market that I can sell to as well. And so I've got price stability. So what happened is this whole mechanism that the Fed likes to play with suddenly got thrown out the window. It's useless now. This is why we haven't really had inflation despite the Fed dropping rates. Because if you look at the inventory to sales chart that that I'll be sharing with you, you see it going down from, roughly speaking, for every dollar in sales, excuse me, for every, uh, it's 1.55 is the ratio inventory to sales. That's what businesses were keeping. They went down to 1.3. What does that mean, 1.55, 1.3? What it means is I'm doing $10 trillion. Of business, and I get to keep suddenly almost a trillion, two trillion trillion that I used to tie up in, in inventory sitting on shelves, I no longer have to do that. That was the huge thing that happened with the internet. But to, suddenly you had these spillover effects. You have things where not just does inventory start to get under control, but the swings. Inventory in a recession, what happens? We stockpile too much. I got too much stuff. I got to unload it. I'm not going to buy more stuff until I unload my stuff that I have on the shelves and I got to unload it at fire sale prices. Oops. It's going to take me a while to, to recuperate. That's what you see in a recession is these massive swings in inventory of things and people. I got too many people for the business. So that's what happens. Well, if you've got tighter swings, you know, you have that, that trough suddenly not being as deep and you've got that peak, not being as peaky. You create this duration that extends because you're not overbuying or overselling. You're not running into these situations where the supply is too great or insufficient, and that allows the economy to function a little bit better. Now the internet did one more thing. So right there, what we talked about is just how you know companies can better manage their cash flow. Capital gets less tied up, and all this other stuff. People are closer to being able to buy cheaper. You get this great disinflation. You know today. E-commerce is 16% of our economy, and that's before we talk about cars and gasoline, which will always be out there physical. I mean, it's huge now to go online and buy your stuff from Amazon, and it's cheaper. It, it just shreds a lot of the costs in the system. So you had real productivity. But the other thing was the cloud. I mean, when was the last time, Lane, you said, gosh, I've got all these movies. I need to store them. Let me go get a flash drive. No. <laughs> Never. Well, there's Dropbox. There's Amazon. There's so many places you go where it's, it's free. That, that removed almost a quarter billion dollars of spending that used to go on. SanDisk flashcards, right? It's gone. Overnight, we just created uh, the death of an industry, but you freed up money. And so the cloud came in. The cloud did something really unique. I used to work at Cisco, and this was the pitch at Cisco. You'd go out and you'd say, you know, you need these routers. But the thing is, your need today is going to get eclipsed by your need tomorrow. So let's go ahead and give you a lot of memory cards. Let's build for tomorrow not today. And so you'd oversell these guys. All right. It's kind of like buying a stereo back in the day. You'd buy your speakers and guess what? Your ant needs to be stronger than your current speakers because you got to work your way up because you're going to eventually buy more. But what this really did was Cisco's out there selling a lot of unneeded and excess stuff. Well, you go to an Amazon AWS world environment where you got the cloud and all of a sudden it is literally like a utility. It's literally like me getting electricity. I plug in and I get what I want as much as I want exactly what I need when I need it and there's a fixed price that crushed Cisco because all of a sudden you've reduced a lot of the spending on capital equipment so about 3 4 years ago there was this henny penny voice running around the the major media people oh my god spending on capex has collapsed businesses aren't buying capital equipment it's the end of the world here again being the moneyball economist you know I was like well that number you're throwing around that spending on capital equipment, well, half of that is IT. It always has been. And what you're seeing is a positive, not a negative. Companies don't need to spend as much on capital equipment anymore. So it's naturally going down. It's not the end of the world. It's freeing up money to be spent in more profitable ways. The other thing that the cloud does when you're not spending it on CapEx, it gets counted as OpEx. And so now I spend monthly instead of being, you know, sucker played and and overpaying and and now having to pay for something that I'm going to sit on for a few years that I may or may not need. Bottom line, what's happened is the peak to trough thing typically runs about six to eight years, like you were saying, because you have this recovery mode, you know, start with start with day one, I'm now out of a recession. Okay, but what that really means is, I'm no longer in a fire sale mode, but I sure am not, you know, the demand hasn't picked up where I'm going to be bumping up my, my inventory yet. You wait about a year or two, the winds are behind your back. So year two and three is usually starting to see that that growth really accelerate. Then you're in high growth and then you slow down again. Why? Because you've reached the equilibrium again. You've got as much stuff as you need. And worse, your salespeople have stuffed the channels. They've started to do the dirty deeds that lead to unqualified buyers buying cars and things like that. So then all of a sudden you find out, oh my gosh, there's less demand than we thought. And yet we've expanded our factories and Uh oh! What do we do? Well, we need to cut back. We need to shutter some factories and lay off people. So now you're you know year six zone. What the internet does is it rings out all those inefficiencies, and so you don't get this massive overbuying. You know, so yes, we're not going to see four or five percent quarterly growth because that was bad growth. That was going from that you know that that wasn't a marathon race, that was a sprint, because it was bad planning and it wasn't bad planning because people were, were silly or dumb because they didn't have the benefit of the internet to really get that strong visibility to the true needs and then manage correctly and by the way along the way we outsourced a lot of the pain to china if we need factories to shutter for a while that's not our problem that's china's problem and in fact right now china is struggling enormously with this trade tariff problem so so you said peak to trough six to eight years are we heading you know what it is a 10 – we've been at this for 10 years. It's not a 20-year. We're not going to see 20 years, but the duration is not overstretched yet. I think a recession's looming. If nothing changes, definitely recession by the fourth quarter starts to kick in. But I could see change coming in the form of China, and I could see it pretty quickly because, again, China is suffering. It is so bad in China right now that you're going to see a deal very quickly. That's why you're starting to read about this in the news. I don't know if that means – Recession then tips over into 2020. As we know, during an election year, they tend to avoid recessions somehow or other. It just wow, the Fed seems to pull it together and business seems to pull it together. We just seem to avoid those recessions heading into an election year.
0: So, just kind of summarizing smoother, less ups and downs. You'll see Um, in the charts. But still, there will be a like a release pressure release point. It's just a matter of, you know, what black swan or white swan event. Happens, black zone event happens.
1: You could see the following happen. So we're close to that kind of equilibrium point, and equilibrium tends to mean we're inflecting in a different direction. And so getting close to, well, what would that mean? What would that look like? Again, it's basically people getting nervous and pulling back and not spending as much, and then that creating that downward spiral. Jobs tends to be the one that everyone talks about. Like if you're heading to work and all of a sudden you're hearing about layoffs whether it's your company or someone else's and you start to hear about it more, or you're thinking about jumping to another company and they're like, Oh, that position's no longer. We're not hiring anymore. That tends to be what causes the brush fire more than not. And so that's why you want to watch labor. Cause that's, that's the quick one because companies will very quickly start to pull back. Another one is, and this is kind of off on the side. I like to watch, like I said, the vice index, cause that, that again is a great signal. But watch the following company. Watch Ruth Chris's Steakhouse. So 50% of Ruth Chris's Steakhouse, their steak chain, 50% of their business comes from business meals. Basically, sales guys taking their clients out or they're traveling and you know, they're on the company dime. And that's the key. They're on the company dime. When you are a CFO or a controller for a company, you're very aware of your f- future business opportunity. A lot of your business is annual contracts. They're coming due. You're already talking to your clients about, you know, can I raise my prices? Are we good? You know, are you ready to buy? They have really strong visibility. So they know when, when they need to step on the brake. So as soon as that starts to happen, that you know, I've got to put a penny or two on my EPS or whatever the, the goal is, as soon as that starts to happen, you'll see travel and entertainment spending pull back. You'll see them basically say, you know what, let's take that steak dinner and turn it into a macaroni grill pasta lunch, okay? We're going to cut back some of our entertainment spending. Ruth Chris's is one of the larger, they're publicly traded, so you get visibility to that. Call it the steak index. If they start to have problems, then you know that salespeople are having problems that businesses aren't making their numbers as well as they should. And that's what you want to see. Right now, that's not a problem per se. It is in some markets, though, but it's not a problem overall. Ruth Chris is doing okay. And when they start to say they're not doing okay is when you want to sit up and take notice. I I think right now, though, the question then becomes, where are we? And that's the hard part because we are at a place where we are starting to plateau. So uh, how long do we plateau? Six months, maybe something like that. But there are these things out there that could continue to goose us along these events like a trade deal that would affect the second half. And that would also affect real private sector spending, as well as the confidence optimistic views that consumers need in order to move forward. So you could definitely have something that makes us inflect up otherwise going to inflect down. And so that's the weird part about where we are, Lane, is it's hard to say beyond this plateau that doesn't last for very long, typically, do we inflect up or down? And so the question is, from a real estate standpoint, where do you want to be? My totally uneducated opinion would be, wouldn't it be neat to have some cash on hand so that if things go up, you can buy some properties and take advantage of renewed acceleration? And if things go down, first off you got some rainy day money, you know, maybe for, you know, whatever reasons, one of your your tenants moves out and leaves you in the lurch for a few months and you can't fill the space. Or conversely, because there might be some fire sales that you can take advantage of. We have an interesting change in our economy where we are onshoring more manufacturing, where we are basically I don't want to call it a renaissance in manufacturing, but there is definitely a tilt towards more economic industrial activity onshore, and preventing loss of IP and things like that. And that is long-term a positive for the economy. Yeah. Which we're trying to
0: capitalize a lot of that in the South and Southeast, you know, like all the manufacturing and Atlanta.
1: Well, Tennessee would be a great place to go in Nashville. Yeah. I mean, low cost to operate. I mean, even, I mean, we used to think of those places they're non they're, they're labor friendly because they're non-union. And so first you had in Tennessee, those automobile companies coming in. And then all of a sudden, if you notice, you've got Wall Street's moving in because they realize it's cheaper to operate there. And, again, thanks to the Internet, you can be anywhere with your operations. So if you had to put a couple thousand people somewhere, you could probably attract a couple thousand people to be your customer support and your IT team in Nashville. Because guess what? Instead of being in New York, they can own a nice house in Nashville, and the weather can be nicer. So, yeah, I totally totally see this. The beneficiaries of this are not going to be the major cities the beneficiaries are going to be more the, the secondary and tertiary cities, especially the cities that are even, I think we had talked about this, you know, 50 miles or so away from the major hubs. So you don't have to be in San Francisco proper. You can be 50 miles away and you'll benefit from whatever growth is happening in San Francisco. Effect.
0: I call them the tertiary markets. And, and a couple of that we just closed were uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, and Huntsville, Alabama.
1: So they- you know, it's interesting because, I was looking at this a long time ago, a year ago, and you could see see where the job growth was favoring those kind of cities. You could definitely see, and the job growth was kind of having two flavors. When I say job growth was favoring, I don't mean the number of jobs. Look, San Francisco is huge. New York is huge. So in the absolute scheme of things, they're going to have more total number of jobs. But when you talk about job growth and you actually see where more people are moving in, and where more jobs are growing relative to the, the population, you're not seeing it. You're seeing it, like you said, the Huntsville's, the Birminghams of, of the world. And that's a long-term trend. Unfortunately or fortunately, real estate has surged so much that everyone's priced out. And so you want to go to where you can afford to live. And then the second aspect of that is a lot of these cities are investing in the STEM type of sciences and technology so that the kids are getting quality education. So you just, there there's a way to look at it. You know, people are going to move to where they can afford to live, get good education for their kids, and they're going to put down roots and where they feel secure and where the, the spending is. But that might not be where you want to buy, because there you're going to have the pressure to own, not to rent. So you got that balance. Instead, go for the tertiary cities like you might be thinking, which are not where these people are going, where you've got, you know, maybe it's the the hub for a big county where you know it's a hundred thousand person city maybe less they've got maybe a military base nearby they've got the local hospital or the local university you know it could be like a madison wisconsin or something although university towns have their own rules of of tenancy but you know go for those kind of cities where you you know no matter what there's a hospital there and that hospital is not going away and it's going to have a certain group of employee base and so on and so forth
0: i like that like that what hospital is there so what asset class do you see is sort of the most recession resistant out there and other than gold that doesn't really make any money. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, you know, let me answer the opposite. I'm a, I'm a
1: diehard Bitcoin thinker. I, I, the Bitcoin thing to me is just a, is, is a symptom of, of hot money running around, not having a place to go. And Chinese guys trying to get their money offshore and that's a great <laughs> way to do it, You know, get the capital flow. I'm waiting for Bitcoin to hit $2,000, even though it's just recently surged again on on Chinese trying to get their money out. I think the asset class to own will be very tricky, but look at bonds and I think U.S. treasuries, and you got to, you know, there's sort of a timing thing here. The yield rate inversion right now is saying, ooh, the Fed is going to cut rates. And I absolutely think that that's right now, best bet is they're not going to be raising, right? (laughs) That's not going to be happening. But I think the reason that you're going to see cutting of rates eventually is you're going to see some zigging and zagging. A China deal comes in, rates will go up because there's going to be this exuberance and everyone's going to get excited. The Fed's going to wait to do any move until they see it actually flowing into the real economy. But along the way, the rest of the world is really crumbling. And I don't think folks are very aware of this. Germany and and Europe are about to spill over into a really bad recession. And that means country, and you're already seeing the problems in countries like Turkey and in countries like Switzerland,
0: Switzerland,
1: the dependent countries that are kind of sitting there, you know, well, as long as Germany's doing well, I'm Sweden, I sell them my coal and my other things and they'll buy it. You're starting to see those emerging market type of countries that are dependent on the bigger economies starting to already be recessionary. Germany is in a recession. It's just the official data isn't showing it yet. And, and we can talk about why, but it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if Europe is fading, we know China's in a world of pain, and they're slowing down as well. Asia, I, I just recently read some horrifying Taiwan export data where they're just they're crumbling. I mean, you're seeing more than double-digit collapse in exports, and you're seeing a 30% drop in their exports to China. I mean, this is, this is horrible stuff, right? So the entire world is, is really spilling over into a, an ugly recession. A lot of this is, again, because of China slowing down. China is not growing as fast as the official data says. And so all of a sudden, the rest of the world depends on China orders, and it's not happening. As this starts to happen, as the nervousness of what's going on, how bad is it? Where is it going? What that means is you've got risk aversion, and there's going to be this flight to safety, and that's the U.S. Treasury. So what happens is all of a sudden, you bid up the dollar, the dollar's valuable, yields come down again. So at the end of the day, I just think you're going to see a lot of love for the dollar happening over the next year or so. Yields will come down. I would go into bonds, wait for the China deal to emerge. Now we're talking timing. Wait for the China deal to emerge
0: because it's just going to be – yeah. Well, when, so when's that going to happen? Is that like a Trump that may. That's a may deal thing. with them or something?
1: So the latest data shows that China is probably losing close to $5 billion a month in lost economic activity in the U.S., now, some of that is going through the back door of Vietnam. Some of it is they're just offshoring to Vietnam or they're, they're shipping via Vietnam. We're going to be closing that door a little bit. We, we'd like to keep Vietnam in play because that's a buffer against China. Again, we're trying to contain China. And so to do that, geography matters. And Vietnam is right next to China, as is Taiwan. So that's why we really like those entities. But China's losing money. It doesn't matter if some of it's creeping back in because they've offshored to Vietnam. Offshoring means fewer jobs in China. So China's losing $5 billion, and they're losing it in January, February, and March. And these are months where you really don't have a lot of manufacturing and exporting. Production in the world typically kicks in now, April and May. So if they were losing $5 billion in January, they're losing $6 billion, $7 billion a month now. And you think, well, that you know, it's a multi-trillion dollar economy. Who cares? Well, they care because they're very export dependent, and that's what they're losing to the U.S., Imagine what they're losing in the natural state of things as the EU slows down. So China right now is very concerned, and they are very interested in a deal. They're they're looking for a way to back down and say, yes, what can we do to resolve this problem? Anyone who's lived in Asia, I lived in Japan for four years, will appreciate the importance of saving face. The U.S. went in very belligerently under Trump. It's very humiliating at this point for China to capitulate. So I will guarantee you that right now the discussion is how does China capitulate in a way that makes the leadership able to hold on to power? Remember, this is a dictatorship at a certain level. So they hold on to power, and China has a history of violent revolution when the people are not happy. And so they're treading water right now. I guarantee you the terms of the deal are already hashed out. What's happening right now is – how does China navigate this in a way and create enough distance? Remember, months ago, they were they were yelling and they were doing all these things, and now they're not. I think the deal is going to happen in, by May or June, simply because, as I, as I kind of repeated, there's a lot of money being lost each month. And the U.S. weren't, you know, they've been playing a game of two things. They've been stalling for time because they, they felt that inflation would kick in, that if the U.S. cuts off supply, the classic economic view was you cut off supply, prices go up except the people who were saying that didn't really read the details because what we cut off supply of was stuff where we had tons of other suppliers outside of China, so it didn't matter. It's like basically saying, I'm not going to buy a a candy bar from the 7-Eleven. I'm going to buy it from Safeway. Okay, that's fine. There's tons of other places to buy a candy bar. So this never had the potential to be inflationary. China hoped it would at some level, but the second reason they've been waiting and why it's taken this long to come to a deal is primarily because of the Mueller report. You had this report where they were hoping, you had in November, loss of power, shift, Democrats took over. What Europe, remember there's another trade war going on with Europe as well. What Europe and China had been hoping for is an emasculated Trump, someone who had no political ability to fight. And the Mueller report was hoped for in that regard. Okay, Trump, the Mueller report, Russian collusion, boom, he's out in 18 months with a new election and, Let's just play for time. You know, he's hobbled. Instead, you've got the Mueller report basically coming out and saying, yeah, nothing. So all of a sudden, you've got a Trump who's in even more power. And a lot of his foreign fair moves haven't backfired on him. I think what China was doing is playing for time, trying to see where the political cards would, would land. And now they realize he's more powerful than ever in his administration. They're going to have to come to a deal. They're losing. America is not losing anything. The leader of America is not
0: going away anytime soon. Time to cut a deal. You know, you cut your losses. When I was getting my first few rentals, I found networking at a local RI club absolutely a waste of time. Most of the people you network with, especially in random networking events, will not lead to anything. The running joke amongst sophisticated investors is that the local real estate club is the worst place for us passive investors to find peers because it's just a bunch of broke people that's why people are seeking real estate advice to get unbroke Hashtag bp for the same reason i am turned off by the 10x grant cardone followers because they are really a ninja in disguise no income no job no assets in some cases they have a scarcity mindset motivated individual willing to step over whoever they need so they are not broke anymore for more networking tips, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash people. Since 2016, I've given hundreds, almost thousands of free calls to my podcast listeners. And now you can chat with me, but you got to join the Who do Pipeline Club. I do this to filter the right people into my circle. I'm always watching and taking notes. Tip. I give freely and generously to who, those who reciprocates and exhibits generosity. Some people are givers and other takers. I have left so much money on the table giving out free advice, contacts, and resources. This is the way I filter people who I want to work with in the future. Ultimately, I play the long game. The Mastermind Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow is a platform to find like-minded, curated, not broke people or jerks, and the best chance for a busy adult to meet lifelong friends even when you have graduated from the program. For the price I'm offering for the networking alone, it's worth it. But wait. By the way, you get 27 weeks of organized content and bi weekly semi private coaching calls too. SimplePassAcashFlow.com to backslash journey to learn more.
1: And so that's why I think they're just trying to figure a nice way to, to come to resolution. The losers in this will be Europe. You don't buy something from someone without not buying it from someone else so anything that they buy will be coming out of the pocket of europe so i would be again and that just you know you're going to have europe cut rates they're going to do all these crazy things that they want to do and every time they do that it makes the dollar look better i would wait for the china deal because what's going to happen is everyone's going to be excited oh my god this is great you're going to have the stock market surge uh, not not to be dramatic it's going to surge 5 to 10% over a 3 month period everyone's just going to be super excited trying to pick the winners of a of a china deal Bond market is probably also going to going to be interesting because you know our yields going to go up in anticipation of demand. You know the Fed might say, oh, things are going to get inflationary. I actually think they're going to go down because I think demand for credit will be interesting to see what happens. All 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 the things that are happening, but also the international problem. If Europe drops rates, you get a strong dollar. You might see some problems with our export. You know we got to keep up with the Joneses. If they drop rates. The bare minimum, we won't raise rates. We can't move directionally opposite at the same time. Uh, the world doesn't like that. The money, the people. Remember, the stock market is noise compared to the credit markets. That's what really matters. We so, also
0: how st- long? How long will this power the economy till another? We need another other China deal two or something like that. All right. So here I am. I am, I'm I'm. the next Bannon. I'm going to sit on Trump's
1: shoulder, and I'm going to advise him. And this is what I would advise him. And I think I'm probably not the only one who probably has this view. This is a master showman. This is a guy who knows how to play to his audience. He moves things. People think he's reactive. And I think if you take a step back and look backwards, either it's a Rorschach test and you want to read into it, or you actually see that there's been a deliberate move. You know, he has a checklist. He said, these are the things I'm going to be attacking, and he's been attacking them, not one at a time, not all at once, but somewhere in a strategic rolling thunder way. By going after Mexico, Canada, and Taiwan, excuse me, and North Korea and trying to get trade deals there, he started to basically show people that that he's going to be a unilateral deal maker. So the next wave is, you got to recognize, in other words, that this is a man who's planning and that he understands that he's got certain tools in his toolkit and certain amounts of ammunition left. So he's not going to put everything out there at once. I believe this is what happens. You get a China trade deal by May, and this guy is going to just use it, squeeze it for as much as he can, trying to get everyone excited. There will be real meat here, and you will see China follow through by June, July with actual spending. So just as we've cut back on them, they've tried to say, you know, spit in our face a little bit, you know, cut back some of their spending on soybeans, and come on, who cares, right? If you're a farmer, you're getting back up from the government. So China hasn't really had an effective Me Too solution so they're going to spend they're going to flip the switch again start buying buying and buying so it's going to add to the second half the economy you're going to start to see it that's when the fed goes wait a second if the economy's back on its feet now we're, we're up to the august september time frame if the economy's back on its feet do we put back on the table a rate hike right now the market's starting to think rate cut and that's what that inversion's talking about do but you know things could things could move by september i would suggest we focus on the jobless claims Trump is then going to say, okay, I've now pulled a rabbit out of my hat with the tax cut in 2017, which enabled 2018 to be a party. I get to 2019, I pulled another rabbit out of the hat with this China deal. You know, it's probably going to add $30, 50000000000 billion a year to the U.S. economy. Not bad, not too shabby. And it's going to drive real business, not Wall Street dollars, but actual building of things. I'm a builder. I respect that. The next thing that's going to happen then is you're going to get the infrastructure discussion. This is where your listeners probably want to think through who and where this infrastructure takes place and who benefits and what cities. So if you're talking infrastructure, what is the reality? The China deal could happen. The switch gets flipped and all of a sudden real business starts to flow in the second half. Infrastructure bill. You're talking about, should we spend $10 billion on this highway, on this bridge, on this, that, or the other? This is big stuff. This doesn't happen overnight. This is a 2020 discussion. This isn't even the money yet. This is just a discussion. The real economic impact of China happens this year. The real economic impact of an infrastructure bill doesn't happen until 2021. But the green shoot idea starts to kick in. What happens, I think, politically is Trump and the Republicans and and you have to talk politics when you're talking about the economics of government fiscal spending, because that's where we are. We're moved we've moved away from the monetary side of life, the Fed, and now into the fiscal side of life. That's what the tax cut was. That's what the trade tariffs are. That's what a lot of what his policies are, are really focused on is how does the government spend money? One of the things he did was to start pushing back against spending on food stamps, you know, because believe it or not, food stamps is a 100, I think it was 100 and something billion dollar annual spend by the government, most of which goes to Walmart, Coca-Cola, and a bunch of other companies, and he's pushing back on that. And guess what? He's it, It's brought down the spending now by tens of billions of dollars. So he's pushing at, at how the government's spending its money, and you can disagree or not on how he's doing it, where he's doing it, but he's doing it. So now he's going to look at the infrastructure bill, and he's going to say, we've got fiscal spending. Politics come in now, and politics come in in a big way. If you're a Democrat, you represent the labor of America, or so you say. So here's a guy who's saying infrastructure. That's going to put a lot of workers to work, a lot of blue-collar workers. So Trump, by default, is stripping away or trying to strip away what has been traditionally the backbone of the Democratic Party. So politics will enter into it. If you're in the Democratic Party and someone says, hey, the people who who, who vote for you are going to love my plan. Well, you've got a problem. You need to own that plan, right? You need to be the ones who pitch that forward. If you're perceived as fighting it and you're a guy who's working on, you know, does welding, you're going to sit there and say, wait a second, that's like three or five years of a career for me. And you're saying, no, I don't get it. It's kind of like uh, Ocasio, I'm going to mispronounce her name, uh, the representative uh, in New York who browbeat Amazon It said, isn't this great? We got rid of Amazon. And everyone turned around and said, you got rid of 20,000 jobs. How is that a good thing? Right. So I guarantee you she will not get reelected because the local politi- uh, political machinery will say, you're actually not very good for you know, helping out the locals, are you? Same thing is going to happen with Trump. The Democrats are now in a corner. He's probably going to start talking infrastructure bill. Once this China thing, you know, he's been able to squeeze as much as he can, he'll probably start to look at 2020 re-election, maybe wait till January, because you don't want to release it too soon. You want to maximize what you can get out of it. Start talking about it in January, and all of a sudden the Dems are on their back feet. If they fight it, they're fighting their constituency. If they go along with it, they support Trump. So they're in a really bad place. But what Trump would do if I were him, would I don't care. Let's start talking about it. I'll start moving it forward, because this can be an election year issue, or it can be something real. What happens though, is you force the dialogue, you force the discussion and you start saying, look, let's start building and investing in America, so to speak. And in a very real sense with real money, a trillion dollars. If you are a real estate owner and you hear that someone's going to build some kind of new liquid natural gas terminal, you know that that's gonna attract, I don't know, put in over a few hundred workers, they're gonna wanna live somewhere, right? So now you know where you want to invest. Well, the question is, nobody knows where these new highways, bridges, and so forth are going to happen. You have to wait. But it's kind of like what happened, again, go back to that Amazon example. Right before Amazon made their announcement that they were going to build another headquarters in New York, what did you have? You had people from Amazon starting to buy property there. And once the announcement was made, you had people buying property there. Why? Because it's a natural evolution. If you've got a big project or something happening nearby people need to live businesses need to operate it's a magnet for opportunity and so i would say macroeconomically okay we get this china thing yeah that 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 keeps 2019 going 2020 you get that exuberance of an infrastructure bill and you will have some people because we'll have details we'll start to have the details of okay i want to build a few more airports now if you're in utah right now salt lake city is building a, a huge airport We haven't seen the downstream effects of having another major airport in the West Midwest. But now you do have the potential for more people operating, more warehouses, people needing places to live. And, you know, you get that spillover effect. Well, when Trump releases his infrastructure bill concept, there will have to be some kind of meat. He'll have to define, I'm going to put X dollars into transportation in highways and rail, airports, whatever it is. And then people will connect the dots and say, okay, if we're investing in moving stuff East Coast to West Coast, what does that mean and how do we make that happen? And what cities stand to benefit? Because it it won't be the major city. You have to have – I mean, if you're talking transportation, you're talking roads, you're talking about spending on something that's going to cut through a smaller town, a smaller city. I think – Politics will influence economics in this case by promoting an infrastructure bill. And a lot of the people I talk to note this and worry, well, what does that do in terms of rates, in terms of this and that and the other? And I raise my hand. I just say, you know what? If you shove a trillion dollars at the economy in a meaningful way, not in a buy bonds kind of way or you know backstop banks, but in a way that says we are building something that's useful and that's demanded by business where they say, look... If you added another lane that was dedicated to electric trucks, you know, self-driving electric trucks, then guess what? I can spend less on people and moving my goods. I can move further, faster. All, all that stuff that happens from real investment, you suddenly have an exuberance, and you'll have the private sector kicking in spending. So now you've bought the 2020
0: election. Right, and that'll power, probably power us for a few more years then at least.
1: I would think it does. It's not a mark. I mean, literally people, people think a trillion dollars is a number pulled out of the air. It isn't, you know, people have, you know, back in the recession, you had talk about, you know, show me your shovel ready projects. It was, it wasn't net new. It was stuff that was already on the books. It was basically the federal government turning to local governments and saying, Hey, you know what? You're going to spend, you know, put a number down. You're going to spend that anyway. We'll pay for it. You know, I'll pick up the tab for you.
0: How about, you know, at at 2000 and, Ten was when the um, the Obama money came out for the stimulus, and I was working those projects in 2017. And it's ridiculous how long how long it, it takes, takes the money while. to get out.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you there's but what does it do? It renews confidence. Okay, money's gonna come any day now.
0: Right. The only people that got got paid was myself, who was just sitting there at my desk permitting and <laughs> sort of like 2011 to 2015, not doing anything.
1: But when it, so, but see the key here is it is a longer-term spend, and that's what's kind of neat. So the tax cut that bought a year, but you start to get to this longer term. It's going to take. So first, you got to do the bidding process, and all. you got to start hiring, and and so on and so forth. All right. So you put something on the table in 2020. You know you're going to have, and trust me, once it's there, the Democrats. It doesn't matter what Pelosi wants to do strategically or not every democrat representative or senator is going to sit there and say oh my god it's pork barrel time because their constituency is going to pick up the phone and say you better make this happen you better bring me the dollars my friend and that's they're going to respond to because all politics is local and so you put a number down that's a trillion dollars and people will you know you'll you'll have the talking heads get agitated he's just buying an election you know sit down shut up yeah that's how the big boys go they're going to roll with it but you know what at least he's spending it on something that's needed. You go back in time, you know, we spent $23 trillion that arguably wasn't needed. I guarantee you though, you know, if Goldman had gone down, there were a bunch of other smaller teams that were ready, willing, and able to take over the obligations. Arguably people could argue with me. They do. My point being though, that this is real spending. It's going to be big dollar. It's going to get the attention, but it's going to take a long time. You know what the planning process is like. What, will happen is the actual impact on the economy put a number out you you put something out there 20 you know he's a builder he knows what's going to happen but say 2022 is when the money actually starts to flow hey guess what it's election time thinking again you bought the so you might have a lull 2021 until the money comes in but it's not one of these panicky lulls it's just okay things have kind of sort of gotten to a point where we've peaked what do we do next? Uh, we'll wait a little bit. Uh, money's going to flow shortly and this and that and the other. And you might have people like your listeners who say, you know what? I do know it's, you know, so let's say that I live near Salt Lake City. You know, again, let me use that as an example because I was just out there recently. Salt Lake City, you know, everyone knows where Utah is. The next, you've got a big airport, you know, LA airport. You've got Oakland. You've got San Jose, San Francisco. Then you start moving eastward the next probably big airport is las vegas when i say big airports what i mean is not just moving people but moving product you have a supply chain and you have different ways that you can move things at any point in time and airlines and airports are very important to that supply chain so you keep moving and all of a sudden you're in utah you've got another opportunity now and when you build an airport that's big you get more flights. Okay, just by default, you've got more airline, airport airplanes. They have to be maintained. You've got to now invest in that infrastructure. But you also have more warehouses. You know, you keep this thing happening. This is a business-oriented operation. You now have warehouses. You have companies that are going to say, well, you know what? I don't have to be in L.A. I could be in Utah now to service this Midwest area you 're going to have people moving in. they might move from l a over they might not It might be net additive doesn 't matter all of a sudden. Salt Lake City is even more of a place to be. You get my point, which is you can see in just this one example what would happen across America of if we spend it it 's not just having to ha- it 's like what was going on in the oil boom a couple of years ago in, in places that you know were nowhere you had money flowing. And so you had to house workers, you had to feed them, money was flowing. And if you are trying to be a landlord at some level and have tenants, you go where they're going, right? And if you can be there where it's not boom bust, if you can be there where there's a real permanent change in the infrastructure, that's interesting to me. Again, it may not be the target where you wanna be because again, uh, it bids up prices. But this is what's gonna happen, and it's not gonna be just in these major centers. Salt Lake City, obviously a bigger city, but you're gonna have the spillover, and that's where your audience might want to think about considering is when this infrastructure bill comes out, and we're a year away, it's not like anything. Plant the seed though, start start thinking about it, listen for what happens, because again, go back in time. After we get this trade deal, what else is there for Trump to own the political spectrum? Let's assume that he's actually there to help and lead. It's not about his ego. What can he do to put on the table that will get him reelected? What can he do as a leader to say, I'm helping America out? What substantial thing? Remember, he's a real estate builder. So this is near and dear to his heart. He's been talking about it. What on his list hasn't he moved forward? And this is going to be one of them that he's talked about. So again, I think all the checklists that you go down would say, The next thing you're going to start hearing about is this infrastructure bill. Wait about six months. Why use your political capital up now when the election's around the corner?
0: Well, thank you for being so generous with your time, Andrew. If people want to uh, check out your stuff, just go to Moneyball Economics.
1: Unfortunately, I've had to shift gears. I'm no longer available. I'm only available to professional investors, basically. We had a great run. In fact, the latest quarter, we ended Moneyball Trader we ended with an 80 percent hit rate in the stock picks and we were doing an etf selection where every month we would rebalance our our etf portfolio and again we've been crushing uh, the stock market Uh, as of this month we ended with a two and a half percent 250 basis points above the s p 500 for the month of march so that on a compounded basis we're averaging somewhere close to 70 basis points per month each month, month over month in terms of beating the broader stock market. So in effect, in the last year, we have generated with the ETFs alone, just getting once a month and get out uh, roughly 14% above the stock market's performance. So 1,400 basis points. Unfortunately, that's only now available to professional investors. I'm my, my bandwidth tapped out. I guess, read me in the news, read me in the funny pages. <laughs> from time to time i'm 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 in The Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or something because again I you know, people like to reprint some of my work
0: well I'm gonna have to send you a gift card and get you in the uh, the mastermind group for these guys that talk to you for thirty minutes of your time in the future once the China deal happens.
1: <laughs> hey man, when that China deal happens, by the way, everyone, you should be long and strong in the equity market if you are dabbling in the equity market. I know everyone says it's overvalued, it's this, it's that. I'm reading the tea leaves, I see some green shoots. I see some green shoots. Just uh, for the sake of of, uh, full transparency, I own only three stocks. They are Amazon, Disney, and Twitter. And I own them simply because I like oligopolies or monopolies. I own what I buy. I buy a lot of stuff from Amazon. I see everyone doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so just, you know, full transparency. Those are the only three stocks that I own. I don't tend to trade my own data. I don't tend to. In fact, I don't. I embargo myself so that there's no uh, accusations, but I love the stock market. I'm passively in uh, just an S&P fund, you know, the ETFs, mutual fund type of things, just letting it sit there and growth. I see, I see it coming back and then I'm going to get out. I'm going to sell into the strength.
0: <laughs> All right, Andrew. Well, appreciate it. Thanks for coming right.
1: on. Thanks, Lane. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye.